everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have made it to episode 63. We're continuing to talk about reshoring, and I'd like to welcome Jason Acevedo to the show. Jason, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot, a lot of fun to talk today. Really appreciate you joining us today, Jason. Before we dive into what you're doing today, which there's a lot to unpack, I'm really excited about this conversation. We spoke a little bit off stream, but I wanted to ask you to give us a little bit more of your background. How did you get started in manufacturing? How did you progress? What was your career up to this point? And what are you doing today? Okay, well, how we got started, we'll kind of kick off there. And I've, I've got to set the stage for, for a couple of different things. First off, I was 15 years old. My brother was 20. So we were, uh, I was a high school kid. He had just got out of high school. He was, he was, uh, he was playing sports in college, but I got to set kind of the timeline. It, we, we started in February of 2007. And at the same time, my dad was working in a factory that he had worked there 28, 29 years. And in the, in the years leading up to that, they had changed hands a bunch of times. It was one of those factories that was completely management against worker. It was not, it was a toxic environment. You got to see it from the worker's perspective of just how bad, bad management could really be. They had to lay off the entire plant seven or eight times in, in just as many years. So when we kick off this company, we're, uh, we're starting out, we've got my, we're, we're printing t-shirts and making apparel and doing that and kind of it starts to gain some steam, not a ton, but it's moving. And then the crash of, of late 2007, early 2008 happens. And at the same time, we see our, our dad get laid off yet again. And this time it's looking a lot scarier. And the thing is that the plant he works at is the most profitable plant for the entire, for that entire company. But they are so toxic that it's the first one they cut every time. So we were watching that right as we're starting our own manufacturing company and made a, a, a vow to each, uh, to each other that we would, ne we would never have that environment in one of our companies. And so we, we did a very different pivot at that moment in time and early on. And this is right as the economy is crashing. We're, we're kind of getting going and we decide, hey, it's, it's got to be all about the people. And the, if you do it like that, the, these companies are going to run well, uh, run well. So we continue the t-shirt business, grew it, uh, grew it up in arguably one of the worst uh, economies in, in our lifetimes. And then we started pivoting to, or we in unison had a retail display company. So we were building these retail displays. And the, the interesting thing about a retail display is it, it's gotten, metal work it's got plastic work it's got printing it's got i mean you're you're touching all sorts of different types of manufacturing it's powder coated it's it's packaged it's assembled there's leds in it i mean you you name it it's just everywhere well a lot of times you well, take that for granted i was sorry to interject a comment for that but yeah, a but, lot of those things you know you don't realize what it truly takes to uh, to create that sorry go ahead yeah they're, they're incredibly complex things that are just at the end of the aisle and no one looks at them but well, we, we were manufacturing those and, and to this day we do. And what ended up happening was we had realized that our manufacturing systems worked and we could, we could hit timelines. We were nimble. I mean, at, at one point we had 25 employees and our average age is probably about 18. So just imagine the, the systems you have to have in place to 
keep the reins on something like that. So we would get frustrated with vendors and would say, you know what, you can't hit the timelines or your quality is inconsistent. We'll just make our own sheet metal company or we'll, we'll do our own injection molding or we'll do, we'll do this or do that. And what happened is we started branching into all sorts of different types of manufacturing. And, And what we got to understand was the base processes that we had built our companies on and, and the core, the core belief and culture that it's about the people, not the product. Well, we started realizing that those could go into almost any different type of manufacturing we wanted. So fast forward years and years. Now we own a, uh, I, I'm a general partner at a private equity f- uh, firm that we started. And we specialize in buying legacy US manufacturing companies. So these are usually second, third generation companies. They're, they, they've got strong EBITDA lines. They're, these are good companies. They're just, they're a legacy company. They, they, they've, they've been around a while and, and oftentimes the owner has decided to stop pushing it forward because he or she knows that they're at retirement age and they don't want to keep, they, they, they just don't want to invest more time, energy, and money. And these are, the cool thing about them is these are really resilient companies. You figure in the last 20 years, they've been through COVID, 9-11, the 2008 crash. Uh, I mean, they've had everything on earth thrown at them and they are still healthy, good, strong EBITDA companies. So we buy these companies and then we connect them on a national portfolio and preserve the legacy of these companies in their local communities. Because oftentimes these are companies that are very important in their local community and then find ways that each company within the portfolio can actually support each other. And, and and really grow off of each other's involvement. Jason, I, I'm really curious. I guess like I have many questions and I think there's <laughs> many directions we can go from this, but I'm curious, how do you assess a company that makes a good fit for you, right? And I don't want to maybe get the secret sauce out of the, maybe the PE firm that you're working at, but like, how do you assess a company that is the right fit for you to transform into what you would like to see or what wouldn't make a right fit? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm curious about those constraints besides maybe yeah, so, EBITDA, right? Yeah, there's, there is no perfect mold. Uh, my, my GPs, we are very well-rounded and we all specialize in different things. So one of us might need to put more effort into a certain company we buy. And the other one's like, actually that's working fine at this company. But there's some there's some core things. Of course, there's an EBITDA line that's important. Uh, we we aim normally uh, between one and ten million in EBITDA. But more important than that, it, it truly is about culture and what and the phase of life that the owner that the current owner is in. So on the culture one, you can't go into we can't go into a company that the management has absolutely thrashed and destroyed the trust of the employees. It, the our our method is so opposite that that we just don't have the time horizon to regain that trust. So we 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 really want to find a place that the owner truly cares about the employees. And I'm not talking about oh, there's a birthday cake on everyone's birthday. It, it, it's not. It, it can't be fake. It has to be someone who truly cares about the people. In addition to that, we 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 like to find an owner who is outright saying, hey, I just want to, I want to retire. And usually what we're going to find is there are growth opportunities they have chosen to not chase because they don't, 
that they know that they're almost at the end. A lot of the owners that we talked to actually were planning on selling in 20 <laughs> and then COVID happens and the world goes absolutely insane. And they've, they've held on another two years, but they're really just, they, they kind of want to move on to that next phase of their life. So we, we're looking for, for that, which is super important. And the other thing is, is they got to be really good at what they do. It's we're, we don't, we want people who are skilled manufacturers. So it's not, we're not going into people that, suck and hey we're going to teach them it, we really want somebody who's known for the quality and the product that they put out and are you seeing i guess you know i'm curious also because you went through the i would say as you've mentioned the worst um decline i would say in 2007 2008 i'm curious you know not to start this on a negative note but are you seeing similar types of maybe uh, signs that we're going into a similar recession? Are you seeing people like panicking a little bit more? I'm curious because I think it also brings an important point back to reshoring, right? As manufacturers are either looking to come back to North America or bring back facilities, there's a lot of questions or uncertainties, at least on uh, on that side. So the, the reality is all markets are uncertain. Right? So yes, you're going to have a pullback and yes, you're going to have a growth. And it, I don't think you're looking at another 2008 because let's just call it, call it as it is. The, the mortgage companies were cheating. They, 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 they were packaging bad product. We're not in that situation. We're just, we've got, we've got, some, we've got some inflation. There, there's other things going on, but from a manufacturing standpoint, this I believe is one of the most, it's, it's going to be one of the most powerful moments in history. We've got, a massive infrastructure bill that gets spent with a ton of industrials uh, uh, clients within the U.S. that has a Buy America uh, uh, rule to it. There, the people are reshoring at an epic rate, and and the other thing too is they're not some of it. They're not even reshoring; they're just storing it for the first time ever. Products that have never been built in the U.S. are are coming in. Everybody. Uh, Everybody outside of the U.S. seems to have figured out that it's cheaper for them to produce in the U.S. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. If you look at the companies coming in and building big plants in the U.S., it's actually usually foreign companies that are like, oh, wow, we've ran the numbers. It makes a lot of sense to do this now. So I'm not – I don't fear a pullback. I think it is I, – I, their pullbacks are inevitable. And I think going through 2008, I mean, our first year of business was was through that. It just taught you to look at it differently. I remember every person told, was telling me and my brother, they're, oh, you don't start a business right now. It's a horrible time. It's You're going to lose everything in this. And what we realized, it was all the people who had never done it that were telling us that, that it, it was the worst time ever and it was horrible. And I, I remember distinctly somebody going, you're going to lose everything. And it snapped me out of that. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm 15 years old. I have $600. What do you mean? I'm going to lose everything. <laughs> like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so it, once they, someone said that to me, it snapped me out of it. And what we started realizing was, and if you hear Buffett or anybody else talk about it, the best time on earth to be getting things going and, and pushing is, is in a downturn. We were buying equipment at pennies on the dollar as people were going out of business. There, suddenly a, a company that was doing really well, like competitors of ours, 
Suddenly, they have a problem with cash flow, not profitability, just sheer cash flow, and they shut their doors overnight. Well, guess what? All of their clients now need now need a new vendor. So if you're smart, any market is a good market to be in. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's many stories like that. One that uh, really comes to mind. I don't know if you've heard about the start of Chobani. So he had bought a plant from uh, Yoplait that had completely closed down and he bought it. Essentially, it was just scrap value at that point, right? But it was the same type of machinery that he needed to uh, to create the yogurt, the, the Chobani yogurt the, that we know today. So it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm also trying to figure out the market and I think everyone's trying to almost like time the market, understand what's going on in the market. But I, I think it's certainly interesting to at least get a perspective of, uh, you know, the one that you have, which is acquiring these companies and seeing how their outlook is on uh, on the entire production supply chain. It's going to be very interesting. Dave, any thoughts yeah, I mean, uh, on your end? Uh, sorry, go, go ahead, Jason. Well, no, I was just saying is, I will say the majority of companies that, that we're looking at um, and that we're acquiring, they are, their clients are back, backlogged two to three years right now. I mean, the, 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 the demand is so high in so many of the things that we're looking at. It, it so far out surpasses what, what growth is there. So I'm not, we are so focused on these legacy companies to give us a, a, a security. I mean, some of them have been around 50, 100 years. If, they, if they're resilient enough to do that, it sounds like a good company for us to have in our portfolio. Dave, what are your thoughts? I would say absolutely. No, I think all of those are, are good examples. And I feel like that this is a, you know, that this is positive that we're all excited about reshoring and, and what manufacturing will continue to look like. I think the backlog example is a really good example. Most facilities that I go and speak with have, you know, th their issue is they can't throughput enough. If they could throughput more, they could sell more because their backlog is six months or, or three years long. Um, and so many of us think of reshoring as, you know, going and building a new facility. Um, earlier in this, uh, this month, we've had a number of conversations saying, hey, reshoring is, yes, going and building new greenfield facilities, but it's also going and expanding and bring, bringing more manufacturing jobs to existing manufacturers, which is very much what you do. Do you, do you perhaps have an example of a company without, you don't even have to particularly say their name, but do you have an example of a company that you've worked with that you've helped increase you know, their throughput and by that bring more jobs uh, to the facility? Definitely. We've, we've been an industrial coatings company that we purchased, uh, I believe in 2020, uh, before, before the fund, uh, uh, just privately. And we took this company, they had gotten beaten by COVID pretty bad. Uh, the, they, the lot of, lot of stoppage for them. We brought them back up by ju just cleaning up the facility going finding some new clients that were in a little bit more diversified uh, market for them. So still the same product of doing industrial coatings, just we, we actually added a, a ton of balconies, uh, balcony railings to them. Okay. Brought them up within about four months to the pre-COVID uh, financials level with, and did that with adding virtually no jobs, just a ton of process, uh, process improvements to them. Then we doubled them in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And that, that brought in a whole second shift of people. 
we got, we, we always try to stabilize first. So any group that we're going into, let's get them clean. Let's get, let's get the trust between the, the employees and us built. Let's understand their process that's gotten them to that point in history. And then we, then after about six months, we, we kind of drop the, uh, we drop the pedal and go, Hey, let's go, let's go for a doubling on, on this. <laughs> And I find that, I guess, pretty interesting. Again, we talked a little bit about this off stream, but you really need to know how to operate in the manufacturing space. And you guys get really involved with uh, with the employees, with the operations to understand, I guess, how they used to operate and bring them back to base condition before you increase, so to speak, like their productivity. I'm, I'm, and again, like maybe Jason, I'm curious about that process. You know, like once you go to the facility, how do you audit um, again, like what they're doing and how do you find opportunities, I would say, in, from that standpoint? So the, the first and foremost, when, when we buy companies, we buy good companies. Right? I'm, we're not going out and buying train wrecks that have to be fixed. That's, that, that's not our style. So you have to keep that in mind when you enter that facility. I like this. I don't necessarily need to change it. So that, that I think a lot of people make a mistake there where they buy something and they instantly want to go start pulling levers. And it's like, no, no, no understand. You, you, when we looked at this company as a whole, we liked it enough to buy it. So therefore there must be a lot of good stuff going on. So the very first thing we will usually do is just start talking to people and find out what, what do floor level employees think was a horrible thing that like, well, I don't know why we do this or, or, or any of any machinery that, Hey, it doesn't really work right, but we've, we've been making it work for the last couple of years. Um, amazingly, the step that I see a lot of people skip that is insanely important to us. We just clean the, the, in that first month. It's just like, Hey, can we figure out just how to get this place clean? It's because especially with legacy companies, oftentimes they've got years and years of, Oh, well that Folgers can over in the corner. That's where we store this. And you're like, Okay, can I get you a real bin? <laughs> so it's really just the ba- it's just basic out of there. Now, once you get to that point, it's about conversations. Really talking to people and go, hey, why do you do that this way? Uh, why do you do it this way? Well, I've done it that way for 20 years. Okay, well, are you willing to look at trying to do it like this? Or, or hey, what, what part of your job makes you really, really sore? Because there's a good chance there's probably a product on the market now that can get rid of that soreness. Once you get that momentum going of truly fixing core simple problems with, with people, you'll start getting that, that cohesiveness of the employees going, hey, actually, I'm also seeing this, or I really want to look at that. And you get excitement out of everybody because there are actually going to be changes made. And, and then sometimes and I'm the first one, anytime we talk to, uh, to a new group, not every idea is a good idea. Not every idea will be implemented. Just understand that. <laughs> so, and when you're honest like that with people, you, but you have to follow it up when they do give the idea, you can't ignore it. You got to go, Hey, it's just not a good idea, but I like, or try to convince me why it is. And we, we spend way more time on the ground in the plants than pretty much any other group I, I've ever met like us. Uh, I, I think this week alone, I'll be in El Paso, Texas, uh, possibly Arkansas, and then California and back to Texas. 
So like we're, we really do get our time on the, on the ground. Uh, it, that's the best way to learn how a plant is really functioning. And it's interesting. Again, I want to like follow up on this because there's a, I want to say like a famous or a known saying, you know, people process technology when it comes to digital transformation. And it seems like from your perspective, a lot of the emphasis, at least at the beginning, is going to be on the people first and trying to understand why are they doing or how they're doing certain things before you move on to technology versus some, again, depending on who you listen to, they would tell you that technology is going, to, is going to solve a lot of these problems, but you really start with the people before you touch anything on the production if, floor. Is if, that a correct if, thing? if you don't have the trust of the people that are going to be operating the technology, the technology will not work. It just, uh, you, the, the, the reality is manufacturing is a, peop, uh, a people business. And I, a lot of industries say that, but it's not... It, it's not like manufacturing. If you look at the bulk of our cost in the manufacturing industry, it's labor and 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 it's process. And if you don't, if you just try to overlay technology on that without gaining the trust and the respect and understanding the business that you purchased, you will not get the results out of the technology. You might get some results, but you're not going to get what it really can do. And that, that is way more important than, than just jumping in and going, oh, here's all this new stuff and it's going to fix everything. Like, for example, an ERP system. An ERP system is awesome, amazing, shows you everything. But if the people don't put the information in right, it's the worst, most dangerous tool you have in your building because it'll start giving you false data. No, Absolutely. Dave, what, do you, what are your thoughts? Because I know you've worked on quite a few ERPs yourself. I, I have many thoughts. I, I feel like Jason uh, did a perfect job basically laying out most of my thoughts. I'm just going to hammer <laughs> home a couple of points. Uh, technology doesn't solve problems. Uh, operators on the line probably know what your problems are. If, you listen, if they know they know the problems and if you listen to them correctly are, are different questions than operators know the problems that they have on the plant floor. And three, clean plants run better 100% of the time than dirty plants. Um, if you, I, I like to, so I've gone into a couple of facilities. I've gone into food and beverage facilities that are the dirtiest places you've ever been. And you commit that you will never once in your entire life eat food or drink that has been made in that facility. And I've been in, in dirty, gra- in theory, graphite covered, you know, pipe plants that I'd eat food off the floor because that's how clean they are. And the clean plants always run better than the dirty plants run. Uh, I, I think to myself, every time I go into a new facility and it's really dirty, I think to myself, uh, like uh, Kitchen Nightmares, that Gordon Ramsay show, and he goes in and it's always dirty. Like, it's just some of the nastiest places you'll ever go and see in your entire life. And he just screams at them and they spend the entire first night cleaning. Um, many times I go into facilities and internally in my mind start screaming at people and shut down the line and force them to go clean everything because it's just so dirty. Well, and, and touching on what, what you're saying, Dave, beyond they even run better, people are happier when the workplace is clean. Like just, yes. just take away anything else. It just feels better to be there. Mm-hmm. And if a place feels better to be, you're going to get more out of the people that are working in it. It's just simple as that. It, 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 so I could not agree more. I, dirty plants drive me nuts. <laughs> they do. They're, they're, they're the worst places in the world. 
most of the time, dirty plants have the most miserable humans. And to, to Jason's point, manufacturing is, is a people business. No matter how much technology and how many robots we put, we're still going to need people, whether it's I need five people to run the line or I need three people to run the machines or I need two people to run the robots that run the machines. It doesn't particularly matter. We have to have people and we have to have happy people. And if they're not happy, they're not going to show up for work. And if they don't show up for work, then the plant doesn't run. Exactly. Jason, what do you see in terms of uh, filling out the workforce? So I know that a lot of companies are struggling nowadays to find people, I would say, like on the technical side, you know, whether it is mechanics, electricians, engineers, are you seeing, I guess, like, are you seeing similar things? Are you seeing that problem being solved? Are you seeing there being like a lack of skilled labor? What are your thoughts in general on uh, companies, you know, like scaling? And I would say also like in the next couple of years, do you think, as everyone brings back uh, facilities or even again, like scales their current facilities, there's going to be an even greater shortage or you see them actually solving uh, that dilemma. Uh, it's a multi-pronged issue. Um, the, it, let's take a step for, uh, back even about 20, 30 years ago, a mother and father would turn to their son or son or daughter and go, Hey, get a good factory job. It'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. About 15 years ago, to maybe even 20, that conversation changed. And it was, don't you get a manufacturing job? Do anything else. Do you stay out of that field. So even if somebody went into engineering, they definitely didn't go into manufacturing engineering. They, they didn't go into pro, uh, process. It's they, they're all computer engineering or, or anything else like that. So that stigma has to be broken. These are good, well-paying jobs that are safe, there, it's the only industry that I know of that you can walk in the front door and they will train you on, uh, on the job it, across the entire industry. They, they, everyone is willing to do that. So once that stigma breaks, and as long as we, we can effectively break it and communicate that these are good jobs, I don't think it, this is, is going to be a long-term chronic issue. Uh, te- uh, one of the Texas community colleges just launched a huge program to do uh, to uh, do uh, industrial engineering and also um, f- facility maintenance, they're placing people in jobs. Like these are they, they're really doubling down on making this happen. Well, so that's really what I think it's going to come down to is can you break the stigma that they're that these are bad jobs? The other side of it is manufacturers need to realize they need to treat their people well. That that. It, uh, you the, the plants that have tons of crazy turnover, almost every one of them you talk to, they're ones that aren't really taking care of their people very well. I mean, we 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 made a commitment uh, when we started the fund that we're transferring uh, 100% of the ownership through an ESOP to the employees of the entire portfolio. Uh, we're expecting your five to seven of the fund. Well, when you can tell somebody you've committed that to them, guess what? It's a little bit easier to get, get people to work. So yeah. you got to ownership has to add value. Otherwise the people aren't going to want to be there. Mm-hmm. I have a quick side question, I guess, like on that structure, how does that like work? And again, like we don't need to go into a lot of the financial details because I think most of the people listening would be on the like technical somewhat business side. But once you, I guess you want to sell the shares back to the people at those companies, they have like an option to purchase a certain amount of shares. How does that like play out yeah. on the production floor. So there's a based on tenure 
tenure, uh, current salary level and position within the organization. And you get awarded X amount of shares every year from these uh, from the uh, moment the ESOP triggers on. And for all intents and purposes, the uh, a, an insurance company basically comes in, buys the all the shares off of a off of the the private equity fund, and then will use a hundred percent profit share over a certain number of years to have the employees buy the shares. Once they've fully purchased it out, it is 100% employee-owned. So, um, but the, the commitment is made from the day that the ESOP triggers. And then when when someone leaves the company or or does anything or moves around or retires, there are ways for them to move those funds into it within their 401k or another plan like that. Is that, I guess I'm not familiar with the, that type of structure again, because as I mentioned, I've worked in fairly large corporations, but is there a proven model that uh, makes sense in that, in that scenario? Are there companies that oh, yeah. use that? Okay. Uh, P- Publix uh, is that the, I mean, there's, there's a significant amount of it. It is a, it is a uniquely American structure. It, it is based so that you really don't, you don't see a lot of similarities in other in other countries uh, of this model, it is, and it has a lot to do with uh, U.S. tax code, but it is it is very very proven as in a very very effective uh, method to both reward the investor side and to reward the the employees. Yeah, and then just to, uh, I was going to say to double down on that, Vlad. I know a number of companies that have gone through ESOP buyouts. Um, and I'll, to most of the folks that I know that have done that, it's a function of they take a portion of their retirement and a lot of the retirement fund gets go, goes into the the the, uh, <clears throat> the money pile, if you will, in order to purchase that ownership. And then a portion of their retirement lives within the within the ESOP. So as they go to cash out, that is their retirement, which creates the alignment of, hey, we want to continue to work to grow the company so that the company is more valuable so that when I cash out my 401k or my, my retirement is a larger dollar value. And studies across the board show that ESOP companies are drastically uh, more pro- profitable and, and more well-run because now every single person in the building has the same interest in mind. Yeah. So it, it, it truly is a special structure. And, and we're, we're very excited that that's how we decided to, uh, to liquidate the fund at the end. So I, I, I love this, I guess, let me ask the, the question, Jason. So you have a number of investors that have come in. How, how did those conversations go? So I, I have never spoken with a PE uh, firm whose goal was to liquidate via ESOP, right? So how did those conversations with the investors go? Some of them, uh, they all go differently. Uh, we've had, if people understand what we're doing and yep. the math is really not very complicated. I mean, I, I can lay it out real quick and this usually lays it out for investors. We purchase companies at three and a half to five, five X uh, EBITDA. Okay. Yep. Uh, th- that's our normal range because they're lower market, lower, uh, small, the mid market companies, usually a little bit on the smaller side. When we put the whole portfolio together nationally, we now have a mid-market company mm-hmm. and the ESOP will hire a trustee. He, the trustee is going to go out and get three appraisals, choose the middle appraisal or three comps and choose the middle comp. 
And that's usually going to come in at a company that uh, a portfolio that size at 10 to 12 X EBITDA. Okay. So if we don't grow the companies at all, we just put them together. Yep. We already have a built-in growth there. Okay. The other beautiful part is, is like I've touched on, ESOPs historically are, uh, ESOP companies historically make uh, make better profits. They're more well-run. And the beauty of it is you have a built-in buyer. The, I, we don't have to decide, hey, I want to sell the portfolio. Let's go out and look for a buyer. And we go, hey, let's ESOP. And it, it is on. And four months later, we're out. So the, we, we can really figure out the timing for everybody too. So when, once you understand the breadth of what it is, investors oftentimes go, oh, okay. Now here's the fun part. And it's, it's kind of my Billy Mays. And then there's more. <laughs> because we're doing 100% ESOP, we're creating a tax-free environment within the organization. So that it has a built-in value there. Well, because we're doing 100% ESOP, our investors are allowed to roll that investment to any any other investment uh, or to uh, to any other market position they want without creating a tax a tax event. So yeah. when they pull the funds back on the outside, there's a ton of tax benefits that don't exist if you say take your fund public. So it, it's there's a ton of benefits, but but really it's educating people on the value of it because first thing I get from everybody is. Well, but you're going to give away the company. We're not giving away the company. We're transferring it to the employees without them having to pay for it. The company is going to buy itself on behalf of the employees. What does the, I guess, as a follow-up to that thought, what does the management structure look like at the end of that term? So how, how does, I guess, like, how does the final, you know, like uh, you said, like six, seven years, right? How does that like final day look like for the, the employees? So they, they are, we, we hammer, we, we are hammering this home with employees all the time that this is the, the plan out. So they understand it's not a sudden, Hey, by the way, you are now going to own the company. Like we're not springing this on anybody. The other side of it is we're going to take the, the last two to three years of the portfolio we call the that phase uh, maturation. And what we're doing is making sure that the internal management of the portfolio is 100% self-sustaining, okay? So it's, we're, we're making sure that they don't really need our help much at that point. In addition, it, pretty much anybody who's gonna sponsor the ESOP the limited partners, which are all of our investors, they get their money out and they, and they go on with, with their lives. The general partners for us, we actually will have to leave probably about 20% uh, with, uh, as, a, as a second note for the, the sponsor. And why that's important is it also keeps us on the board. So if something does go awry, we will still be there to jump back in and help out to get it back on, uh, back on the correct track. So it's not a, hey, here's the keys, I'm, I'm taking off. We're still involved in this company, most likely for another 10 years. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's what I kind of uh, was wondering about. You still have, uh, I guess, like a smaller piece of the pie. So you still are, I guess, expected to contribute uh, as needed. But ultimately, there is a transition period. That's very, very interesting. Correct. Dave, what are your thoughts? 
I think this is very interesting. So I'm looking forward to continue this conversation, but first we've got some people to thank. So if Vlad goes ahead and, uh, and plays our sound, we'll go ahead and thank Bright Machines. Awesome. Uh, so we want to thank Bright Machines uh, for sponsoring the reshoring theme. At Bright Machines, we believe there's a smarter way to build things. That's why we're working with manufacturers around the world to rethink manufacturing operations for whatever comes next. We enable manufacturers to reshore more quickly, to future-proof their factories, to keep up with fluctuating demand, and to save money. With a full-stack solution for assembly and inspection that marries deep industry and technology expertise with hardware and software in new ways for a more intelligent approach that's more flexible and more scalable for the next normal and beyond. Um, Bright Machines. Uh, so Bright has given us a couple of uh, pieces of information about reshoring. So we've got a guide for 2022, which if you guys listened to episode 59 with Harry, or episode 60 with Harry, um, there's a whole total cost of ownership. Um, so calculator in there, as well as some top five answers for reshoring. And I'm going to go ahead and drop those in the chat. If you guys have any thoughts, uh, please feel free to reach out to us and we'll connect you with the folks from Bright. Or please feel free to go ahead and take a look at those guides. And again, we'd like to thank Bright for sponsoring this theme and uh, for their support of the entire show and the community. Uh, Vlad. Where do you want to go from here? I, I feel like there are so many questions to ask Jason. Now is about the time where Vlad says, oh my goodness, I have so many questions. <laughs> we've already hit that bingo box like three and a half minutes into this show. So, uh, so, so Vlad, where do we want to continue the conversation? I'm curious, Jason, you know, looking at how you approach uh, small to mid-sized companies, would you see the same or I guess like different challenges going into larger companies? Do you think that a more mature, let's say, Again, like a plant with maybe a thousand employees or even several, a company with several plants would present the same challenges. Do you foresee them being differently? And I'm, I'm assuming you've also been to plants of larger size because I'm sure there's a lot of interesting deals probably in the pipeline. But I'm curious your thoughts on whether or not the challenges that you see are the same between the different sizes of companies. So we don't only look at the small ones. I actually, we've got one right now we're working on that would is easily in the mid tier size of about a thousand employees. Yeah. Um, the, the problems are similar. It, really it's because most of these companies came up together. And what I mean is we're looking at legacy companies. So these aren't like a, a plant that was opened five years ago. They really have had a similar history. Now, if anything, the bigger ones are easier to do. They, they, when you get a nice big humming plant, you've got the human capital to, to be able to execute on a bunch of stuff. But really, amazingly, the problems that they have all actually end up being similar. Right? We, we've got a little group that we're, uh, we're going to close on by the end of the month, it appears. They are the best at robotics I have ever seen. And this includes going into mega, like big, big boy stuff. And these guys out robot people. It's, it, they, they do them internally. They've got 10, they've got a hundred employees or so. And they have 10 uh, robot programmers on site. Like it, they, they are just, they're, that is their thing. And we fell in love with it. So it's funny because normally you think smaller company, they have more trouble with automation. No, I'm actually seeing on the biggest side where they're they're sitting there going, 
I don't quite know what to do with automation yet. It's our first foray into this. So the, the, there is no like, hey, the, this big plant does this or does that. It's really similar situations. I, I, I give an example, it's, and it's not my story, but the one of uh, our vice president of manufacturing, he, he was at Tesla when Tesla started. Uh, like before they had a building there. And one of the things he's always pushed for is putting trees inside of the, the plant. And he goes, it just makes people feel like they're not stuck in a box all day. So you realize that even at that size and that brightly lit, the, the craziness that the Tesla pushes forward, they're still, the employees are still feeling like they're trapped in boxes, if not worse, because now they're in cells. So You've got that same thing. It's just bigger. And so really trying, it goes back to how do you get the people to, to, to work and people are people that pretty much no matter where you go. Gotcha. And as a follow-up, I really liked one thing that you mentioned, which is the automation, or I guess the robotics capability of one of the company, uh, company that you're looking at, would you create potential synergies, right? So if you acquire this company that has a staff of skilled robotics programmers, do you think that you can reapply that expertise elsewhere? Are you trying to find, I would say, I guess, are you trying to find also deals where you can not only optimize the plant itself that you're acquiring, but also kind of synergize with the other plants you also have in your portfolio so that, again, I think bringing this back to the reshoring theme, looking at, at someone who's looking to partner or bring back a facility, they can look more strategically than just, you know, we're going to buy this specific plant that buys a widget that we have upstream from our facility so that there's more than just, uh, you know, that. So when we look at, when we look at a company synergies with other companies in the portfolio is a very core reason why, uh, why we would buy or would not buy a company. It's, okay. I mean, we, the, the moment we decided to buy this company, every single, every single person is like, Oh, good. We've got a good robotics team to take to the plants that have no clue about robotics. <laughs> so, you know, there is that is that that's the that's the entire basis of taking these smaller companies and connecting them together is because now they freely interchange. And, and that's part of the reason why we actually why we're ESOPing the entire portfolio instead of individual companies to to their individual employees, because that information trade has to be dealt as a as a full team and there so you get some groups that absolutely amazing at one thing but they suck at the other and then you go to the next plant and they're amazing at this but they suck at that and you just start connecting them and go hey trade information with each other uh, and that that i mean the, the sheer power in that it means that you don't have to solve every problem maybe the maybe the companies within the organization can already solve it but we're also doing that with the clients so we, we happen to know one right now that they're, they're logged into a major automotive manufacturer and the automotive manufacturer is pushing them really hard to get back into sheet metal. They, they do plastics. And we're like, whoa, whoa, maybe you don't get back into sheet metal. Maybe we have one of the sheet metal uh, plants get, take, take those part numbers. So we're, we, we look for how all this is going to fit together uh, all day long. That, that it's that the, the sheer growth we can get out of it, and it's free. That's really interesting. Again, I'm, I'm just having some thoughts in the back of my head as you're explaining the process because there's so many, I would say, like variables at play, and there's so many ways that this could ultimately like play out. But it must be 
very interesting to see again how those pieces of the puzzle come together and how you can again looking at the robotics program is like oh now we have this expertise like we can instead of hiring a few robotics engineers at every single company we can use the steam that already exists in order to help again on the technology side but this could be applied to anything right like this could be like there's a really like good management team there's a really good like milling team there's a good there could be a lot of different examples that's uh that's really interesting dave what are your thoughts i guess of uh cross-pollinating expertise like that across different facilities? I think it provides a variety of unique opportunities, but also a variety of unique challenges. At some point, you have to convince my really great 10-person robotics team that goes to work at the same factory every day to get on an airplane and spend three weeks or six months of, uh, of a year in other places. But I, I, think it's, I think it's good. I think it is unique opportunities that most small companies will never see and most mid-sized companies are not large enough or diverse enough to, to ever find themselves in uh, in that. Um, so I think I think it's interesting. Uh, we will absolutely have to check in with Jason to, to see how that goes uh, as, as he continues to grow the fund and as we we move closer towards a uh, a mid-market or a, a mid-sized company uh, ESOP. I think that's interesting. But but Jason brought up a couple of interesting questions or a couple of interesting comments about technology, and I feel like we would be negligent if we didn't ask a little bit about the technology. So I guess two-part question for you, Jason. One, what technologies, if any, are you looking for when you talk to or, and, and look at potential new companies? And I'm going to tell you the second part, and we can get to that after. But the second part is going to be, is there a tech, is there a preferred technology stack that you're moving the entire organization to because they're going to be one mid-sized company when you're done? So uh, I'll, go, uh, I'll go back to something you had said. We don't look for technology. We look for problems. That, that, that is, that we, we, so I, I'm, I, I'm never walking around going, I really, well, every once in a while, I, I will walk around going, I want to, I really want this thing. Uh, yeah. But that's more of just a, 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 like when Cobots first came out, we had to have one. Like, I didn't, we didn't know what we're going to do with it, but we had to have it because we knew we need to understand the technology. Mm-hmm. So that is, we're really looking for problems. I'll give you a, a really good example, a tech that I absolutely love that we saw at uh, Fabtech. So one of the biggest problems in the industrial coding space is the time it takes to get somebody trained to spray a coating. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's horrible. Well, a group, I can't remember their name, has come up with a VR powder coat and wet spray training module that is almost dead on. And it gives you how much powder uh, buildup you did in each area. It gives it the cure. It tells you if it's orange peeling. It is the coolest thing I had seen. And we, we just took notes that, hey, this is a cool thing, but we don't necessarily need it. We went back to the industrial coatings group and they're like, oh, we have been having such a hard time training new people. And you don't know if they're going to be good or bad. And you're like, I have this tool. <laughs> Here you go. Mm-hmm. So we really try to build up as much knowledge of, of what's going, of what's available and then try to, ma- as we find problems, because we're constantly kind of muckraking of trying to find problems. And then we go, oh, this little thing I saw over here might help out. And I mean, you brought up auto, uh, automate earlier. We were actually supposed to be at Automate next week just to go look at everything that was available. We actually had to postpone that because uh, because of some uh, acquisitions that we're in the middle of. But 
that really that's kind of how we go. So there's not a universal across the platform. Hey, every company needs to work on its own tech. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, we really try to specialize it. Now I'll, I'll give an example. We're a lot of the plants are very, uh, very Amada based because that does make it easier to have, Hey, all the sheet metal operations run on Amada equipment. Mm -hmm. You've got similar programmers. So if we can find commonalities, sure. But we would never allow a commonality to be the driving reason to fix the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a push mid to long term for you guys to, I don't, like, I don't know if there'll be an ERP or other system like that that lives across the entire organization. Is there, is there talk of that? Is there look of those technologies or is that conversation kind of far off into the future for you? No, so th that conversation's uh, right up front. We... The the cork is is using Odoo right now uh, mm -hmm. for its ERP. Uh, one of the groups that we're looking at just uh, just put in about a year and a half ago Microsoft Dynamics, and it's working really well for them. So I'm not going to go tell them, "Hey, you have to switch." It's easier for us to make it so the softwares talk to each other than it is to make a plant switch its software. So it it, it really doesn't make. It, uh, on paper, it looks nice and clean and go, hey, everybody has to be on the same ERP. But because we're not in one style of manufacturing, yep. some stuff just doesn't make sense in other places. It's, uh, I'll be be honest, like uh, one of the industrial coatings plants in uh, California, they run on an Excel spreadsheet and a ticket system. Mm -hmm. And it works really, really well. And it is not broken in any way, shape or form. <laughs> And they they turn, I think it's 20 or 30 jobs a day or something like that. So it just doesn't make sense to get them on an ERP. It, it, now, might it in two, three months or two, three years? Sure. But right now, their business model doesn't match an ERP. Uh, Quick, QuickBooks plus, plus uh, a ticketing system, and you're totally yeah. fine. Absolutely. That's very interesting, I guess, because I've seen or heard of many examples where the opposite has been done, right? Where you acquire a company and then you almost like force it or shove it down their throat. You're going to be changing to this ERP. You're going to be changing to these control systems. And again, I would say from, from what I've heard personally and what I've seen, employees are not extremely happy when such abrupt change takes place. I, I think it takes a lot to be able to do that well. Well, and I go back to, we buy good companies. So mm -hmm. th th there's a whole different business model for people that go out and buy companies that are broken and need a ton of support and, and redoing. Yep. We don't, we buy good companies. So I, I'm not having to come in, I mean, and completely change and wreck their worlds because we purposely buy good ones. And, and there's so much, I, our pipeline is continually full. And, but it's because we're, we're, we look at it different than, than most other people. I'm almost scared to ask how bad would be like a bad company. You know what I mean? I think like that's a discussion for another day, but I can only, I guess, like imagine <laughs> or at least have some ideas of how bad it could be. But uh, you, you, you'd be really amazed. Uh, we had an owner one time tell us that we could buy the company, but we weren't allowed to change a single thing because he was smarter than us. Ah. Um yeah, I know so. those owners. <laughs> it, it, I know those he, owners. It's not like he hinted at that. He actually yeah. said it to us. <laughs> I like, I'm like that. I'm like, 
who you're going to be fun if I buy this company. No, 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 no. no. So we've seen that. Um, the, the one that frankly kills the most company, uh, most prospects for us is people just treating their, treating their people so bad that you realize that the company's running off of fear and that's just not us. So we're, we don't, that kills it. But I, we've had everything from looking at people's books and they had uh, three, B, uh, they had uh, two vacation homes hidden in the books that, that they were getting. I mean, just stuff that you're just like, okay. Um, <laughs> and, and then they tell you, oh, but it has to be a, uh, it has to be a, a full stock transfer because I'm worried about things. And we're like, oh, no, 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 we're good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I would say that there are certainly some people that do things that are questionable. Uh, when you're a small to mid-sized company, the IRS is not necessarily going to come audit you. So you've got potentially a little bit more flexibility in what you do as to if you should do it or if your accountant should agree with you or not are, are completely different conversations to uh, to have. But but here we go once again, almost getting ourselves into an accounting show, Vlad, um, <laughs> of, of which we are absolutely not. But no, so I think this has been a very interesting conversation, Jason, and I feel like this is the right time to ask you to predict the future. Maybe a little bit about reshoring, maybe a little bit about legacy American manufacturing businesses, but, uh, but give us your future predictions, please. I... I believe the surge in the manufacturing space over the next four to five years, you're going to, it, it'll be palatable. Uh, the made in America will not be a, a specialty slogan anymore. Honestly, uh, I think it's just going to become very standard. And uh, what my hope and my belief is, is that that conversation parents are having with their kids will change that we've, we've created an industry an industry brand identity that is good again. And then that will just fuel more and more rotation into the industry. I, I like that. I guess let, let me kind of follow up because you touched on it a couple of times of the need to tell, we'll, we'll call them kids, right? Like people growing up, maybe people looking to get their first or second jobs that manufacturing are, are, are good jobs, right? Like I always think of them and refer to them as, hey, they're good, solid jobs that you can afford to live and raise a family with. Um, and so I guess, I guess the question becomes, Jason, is, is have we done enough? Or maybe what else do we need to do in order to drive more people into this industry? We, we have not done enough, in my, in my opinion. I, I think we're beginning to. Uh, but really, it's two-sided. First off, manufacturing owners need to need to step up and make sure that they're actually taking care of their people. That that is, you, you cannot fight with low wages uh, against low wage countries. You have to, you have to fight with what is uniquely American. You innovate your way out of it. So yep. that it, it falls on the owners to do that part. The other part of it is, is we got, we've got to get people into schools and into plants. So Hey, you want, if there's a career day or something like that at your school and you, you own a manufacturing company, go talk, go, go explain what it is. Cause I'll tell you one thing when, when kids see the videos of the inside of the Tesla plant, they're inspired to work there. Yep. That, that, that is Elon flying a, a drone through the new Berlin plant. It, this is so that he, he's showing people, this is not what you think it is. Mm -hmm. I wish so, more manufacturers would do that, Jason. Sorry, sorry I, to interrupt you, but uh, no, I, I really feel it. 
they don't showcase enough of uh, what's going on. I, I think that we've, uh, and again, like we've gotten stuck in this whole idea that everything's proprietary, right? Like my, my palletizing robot over here putting a box on a pallet <laughs> is the proprietary machine that we're protecting. And it just, it doesn't do them justice. Uh, I just, I, I don't know if it's the management who's like unaware a little bit, or it's sometimes the bureaucracy of these larger companies. But I think a lot more companies should be doing exactly what you've said. The drone that flies through the well, Tesla plant and... It's something well, and manufacturers for all, all intents and purposes, a lot of them have their head in a factory. None of that is special to them. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've seen the robotics a million times. They've seen things flying through like machinery moving around. And what they don't realize is all of us who are operating the space, that is our vision of, of a modern factory, but a typical parent or typical American right now still is thinking of Charles Dickens dirt floors and like losing arms and machinery like this is the this is what's ingrained in people's minds and if you look at every movie that that goes into a factory I don't know if they like turn off the lights and like spray grease guns (laughs) everywhere before they come in or what but manufacturers need to realize that the outside world doesn't know what these plants look like and we i could not have said it better jason (laughs) i could not have said it better. a little i guess like side like personal story how i got started in manufacturing is i was flown out to a site in uh, in maine and so i had absolutely no idea of what manufacturing was you know i just wanted to give this interview a shot it was a really big company but i've never seen a production floor right so i did a traditional electrical engineering degree never talked about manufacturing didn't know what automation was showed up to this production floor in Maine, flew out from Los Angeles, which was where I was residing. And, you know, I gave a week notice to my current employer to go work there just because I saw what the production floor looked like. The robotics, the the hardware, the people, it was like quite something, to be honest with you, that it, again is not readily available. You can't go on YouTube and see what the that specific production floor was. Well, but anyways, that's... And it's... It's a it's a tactile feeling when you go into a plant and like say there's a punch punching sheet metal and you get that mm, that hits your chest. We had talked earlier about how do we explain things to investors. Our best pitch to any investors like, do you want to come buy a plant? I can go to a factory. Yes, I'm in. (laughs) It's the amount of these are people that they've done great things in their careers and the second you say do you want to go to a plant they turn into a 10 year old little kid again and they're like i want to go see all the tools <laughs> like this is but we get lost in our own world we, we live in these plants so they're not they're not special to us like it it, it, it the, the the magic has worn off and we need to realize that the best way to motivate people to realize this is a very valuable thing is to get them in there and just let them see what we see every day. Absolutely. No, I, I think that that's, I think that that's very good advice. I think that seeing is believing uh, and that if you can show people more people are going to be excited about it. Now, if we can convince 
you know, mid to large size companies to allow us to go put cool videos and fly drones through and then live through 18 months of legal approval where they nitpick every single pixel of things that we can and cannot show. That is a different conversation, but uh, but, but maybe a conversation that, that we need to have. Uh, so the next question for you, Jason, and I feel like some of it goes to the last question is some career advice. So perhaps maybe some career advice to for, for parents to give to their children or for children or young adults looking to get into to a first or second career, you know, is, is the career advice getting to manufacturing? What is that for you? So, I mean, no matter what you do, the most important thing in a career, especially if you're starting your own business, is resilience and fortitude. Things are going to go wrong. That, that, is, the, that is the reality of owning a business, the reality of having a job. And understanding that you got to just put your head down and go through it, That's the most important part. I, I've, I've watched people start companies, start doing well, they get hit by a, a roadblock and they throw away all that work. And that, that is, that is the saddest thing on earth to me. It's like, Hey, you got to realize it's going to hurt. There, there are days that you're not going to want, you're not going to want to keep going and you got to have that resilience and that fortitude just to push through it. I think that that, I think that's good career advice for everyone, right? No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, resilience and fortitude, especially important uh, to be successful, be it you're running your own company or or anything else in life. Uh, Next, next question for you, Jason is, do you have a book recommendation uh, for us? I, I like to joke that this is our not sponsorable, not sponsored Audible uh, section because for the longest time, Vlad would get on his phone and immediately, as people are uh, as people are talking, go and spend his monthly Audible credits on this. So, do you have something that Vlad or and the rest of us can uh, can listen to or read? Okay, I'm going to go with the cliche manufacturing one, and then I'll go with the other one. But if you're in manufacturing and have not read the Toyota Way. You are doing yourself the largest disservice in history. That single book outlines where industry is going. And it's, it's an older book. It's, I, most people have already read it. Read it again. I read it probably tw- two times a year because I'm still pulling nuggets of how they work with their people out of it. Mm-hmm. From a sheer business and personal side, Ray Dalio's principles. I mean, th- there's a reason why the guy runs the largest hedge fund in the world. He, it, it boils down both life and business principles to really a data-driven method. And I've, I, I try to retouch that one as often as I can. And my, my team reads it on, on a pretty regular basis uh, to keep on t- dissecting what he's saying. Uh, he is so godly more intelligent than, than the greater majority of people. It takes reading his words multiple times for me to digest it. So we continue to reread it. (laughs) Jason, speaking of being data driven, we got a question in chat from Hugo and it's a, it's a long question, but uh, let me read it to you. So he's asking, do you think it's important to provide data from the shop floor to help people improve the process in all have access approach? Like everyone knowing how much parts were made, bottlenecks of the plant, major losses, etc. And he's also talking about giving them access to like temperatures, torque, pressures. Like, I guess it's a little bit 
on the extensive side, but what are your what are your thoughts on data in general? Have you worked in plants where you know there's very little data and you give people access to some of these tools and they start making better decisions and that leads to kind of growth of the of the facility? Yeah, so first thing with data, data must be good or data is the most dangerous thing on earth. It's I I have I hate when people push bad data because what <laughs> happens is you make bad decisions. So yep. the, the, allowing everyone to see everything, unless you know that that data is pretty accurate, you've, 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 you're, you're playing with fire here. Mm. I believe that all data should be free, freely available for everyone to see. And anybody in the company can see it because there are times that some, you need outside eyes so they can, they can catch different things. That being said, you also need a filtered view. Throwing every piece of data on earth at every employee is not fair to them. They have to, you have to have a filter that shows, okay, here's the stuff that it takes to do your job daily and, and to do it at a, what I would consider a base level. And now you have access to more if you want to progress your job. But some people cannot naturally take in that much data. I'm, I'm one of them. I, I hate when people just throw a thousand things at me and it's like, I, I'm, uh, you want me to interpret this thing that I've never even looked at? Come on. So really there's a, there's a, it's like everything else. There's a balance there and listen to your employees. If they're saying, Hey, I feel like I'm being, I, I, I feel confused by all this content or all this data, pull it back and, and go, Hey, okay, then let's just get you a couple metrics to look at and go from there. It's interesting that you, I guess, like, uh, I like the answer that you gave. And I think it goes back to uh, a conversation that me and Dave, I think, had a couple of times. But it's the, um, it boils down to having too many options, I guess. Like, right, if you have too many data points, it almost, like, not necessarily paralyzes you, but makes it difficult to make a decision. Because you're then, like, stuck trying to figure out, like, what exactly am I looking at? And what exactly am I supposed to do with all this information? So, uh, I like that answer. So I would add to that, I think data transparency is important, both on the plant floor and if an organization wants to thrive the financials, like if we have issues, people should know that we have issues. Um, and if we, operators and people that work at facilities feel better if they know that the company is healthy and they're always to some extent scared if we have bad days or bad weeks and we don't know that the company is healthy and we do a poor job of projecting what that looks like. So I think data in general should be transparent uh, throughout organizations. I would also say to, to Jason's point that if we just dump everything in front of people, that's just lazy, right? Like if I'm, if I'm going to give you every torque value, every set point, everything in one Excel document and say, good luck. That's just, that's not data transparency. That's just, <laughs> we're being lazy. So data transparency is important, but we should give people the information they need to do their jobs. And then also as well be transparent. Uh, but no, I think that was that was a good question, uh, Hugo. And uh, thank you, Jason, for uh, for your comments on that. Uh, last question for you is is who should reach out to you? You know, who do you want to connect with? Who do you help? Who do you want to help? Do you need anything? Yeah. So first and foremost, if people are interested in investing with us, please go to mrca.net. Uh, there's all the information there. There's a way to go directly to our investment portals. Uh, there's also a calendar link on uh, on there 
to get directly on my calendar or uh, or the other GPs. As far as connecting, we, we purposely leave that calendar link directly to my calendar. I will talk to anybody about pretty much anything. I'm, I'm happy to discuss, I mean, within the, the realms of what I can and cannot discuss about what acquisitions we got going on. But we really do try to share information with people. Um, if you've got a company that you that you think fits our mold, we're we're always interested uh, looking at the pipeline. If you're looking for, hey, I want to make kind of spread, we're we're always happy there too. But really, we're we're kind of an open. I'm very hey, how can we not only with our own organization, but how do we share information everywhere? Jason, we no. lost you a little bit on that last statement, Dave. I don't know if he cut out a bit for you. Could you? Yeah, sorry, you, you the cut. But you're doing a really good job giving the the the, the point of you want to connect with people. Can, can you do it <laughs> one more time, just so we can make sure that we have that part, Jason? Of course. So we we are all about sharing information, whether that's within our organizations or externally. There is a link on there that you can go directly on my calendar. I will discuss anything. I mean, within what I can and cannot uh, for uh, proprietary information. But really, we if you have a company you want to sell that you think fits our mold, if you've got questions about how to run your manufacturing company or anything, feel free to reach out. We're, we're open books and we're here to help. No, I, I think that that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Jason. And thank you everyone for, for listening. This has been an awesome uh, conversation on reshoring uh, and a great cap off to the reshoring theme here on Manufacturing Hub. Um, if, I, I, will, I will remember once again, if you guys are not, please go ahead and subscribe to Manufacturing Hub. Uh, we've got a page on LinkedIn, uh, Solus PLC on YouTube. If you guys want to and want to help the podcast numbers, please feel free to go ahead and download and subscribe and rate us five stars on everywhere that you can possibly rate us five stars. Please remember to check out manufacturinghub.live, which has Vlad, myself, Jason, and all of our guests' information if you're looking to connect with them. And until next Wednesday, uh, the 8th, we will uh, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Bye. you, everyone. Appreciate it.